Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The next category is Best Fan... Pardon <coughs> me. Best Fanzine. And to present the award for Best Fanzine, please welcome Governor James Shields. Which is unique to science fiction fandom, it's fanzines. I know there are fanzines in other fields, but I think our ones are quite different and unique to us. I think it's something that has really defined what we are over the years. Um, I think it's got easier with technology, but I think our, our standards have got higher. We, we enjoy each other's fanzines and uh, reading, what, reading from other parts of the world. So for me, it's a really great honour to be presenting this year's Best Fanzine Award. The nominees are Argentus, edited by Stephen H. Silver, Banana Wings, edited by Claire Braley and Mark Cover, Challenger, edited by Guy H. Lillian III, Drink Tank, edited by Christopher Gwirth, J. Garcia, and guest editor James Bacon. File 770, edited by Mike Blair. And Starship Sofa, edited by Tony C. I thought that would be a nice way to open the show, just to let you hear the actual words that were said when Starship Sova won a Hugo Award for Best Fanzine. Thank you, Grant Stone, sir, for stepping up there to the mark and doing that. What a lovely speech. Thank you so much. 
Just want to say a big thank you to Kevin Stanley for courtesy for that soundtrack. He's actually put up the whole awards on video. If it's at the Hugo Awards site, if you want to go and have a look at that, please. It's actually on my site as well, if you want to come over there and have a look. 41 minutes is when Starship Sova kicks in and wins. But it just the whole video of that ceremony is up there. So, Kevin, thank you so much for that. Put a little link on to Kevin's site. So this is Oral Delights Show 155. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Coming up this week then, we have not only did Starship Sova win a Hugo, Fred Paul and Jack Vance won a Hugo as well, them old-timers in the science fiction field. I've got an interview with them, which is just fantastic. Then we have our fact article by J.J. Campanella. Main fiction comes from Paul J. McCauley. Then we have a fact article all about Salon Futura by Cheryl Morgan. A little interview I did with Cheryl just to find out everything about this new site that Cheryl's got up and running. So I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy the show. On the line, three Hugo winners, and, and I'm one of them, but we have the fantastic, we have Jack Vance and Fred Paul on this show now. Jack, are you there? I'm here. Oh, hello, Good sir. Here. Hello. And Fred, can you hear me okay? I hear you. Right. So, gentlemen, and I'll start with Fred first. What was it like, Fred, to win the Hugo now? <laughs> well, I loved it. I had not really expected to win another Hugo this year. I thought I might next year because I've got a new book coming out that I really like. But um, that's uh, next year. And I'm sort of, I'm, I'm always happy to get a Hugo. I'm not even, I'm not sure, really, that I should have been in the competition for this. I mean, what I got it for was fan writing because the uh, my blog is a sort of a, Fan, fanzine, but it's not fair for me to compete with 19-year-olds. I mean, really. Jack, what did it feel like for you to, to win a Hugo? I, I, it doesn't make much difference to me, to tell you the truth. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I've got enough trophies around here that I don't give a damn. But I, naturally, I was happy to get it. Good for you. But uh, it doesn't... Uh, I don't know. I'm getting a little long in the tooth around here. I uh, right now, I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm into music now. I'm I'm creating this uh, short-tailed jazz band. I'm playing all the instruments. And I'm going to see if I can sell the damn thing. Uh, and it's turning out real good, great music. Fred, I don't know. Are you a musician at all? Uh, no, I. No. Well, I tried to learn the piano when I was in Italy, but it turned out to be more of an Italian lesson than a piano lesson. Oh, no, I'm into jazz, very, and uh, this, I'm playing uh, banjo, mm-hmm. harmonica, washboard, jug, <laughs> and vocals. That sounds great. And, uh, and uh, what have this friend of mine comes over, and I knock out one uh, instrument at a time, and he puts them together. Uh, to make a, 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 a 
Well, anyway, he puts them all together to make sounds like a jazz band going. So, that sounds good to me. Listen, Jack, there's something I always wanted to ask you. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I dreaded since I was a child was losing my sight. And you lost yours about, what, 20 years, well, 20 or 30 years ago? 20 years ago. What was I it like? It, it's, it, I've gotten used to it. I don't like it, obviously. In fact, if I think yeah. about it, I can get a little nervous. But in general, I've got reconciled. I, I don't have any choice, you know. It's either I either dead or alive with my no good eyes. So I, I'm happy to be alive and uh, think of beautiful thoughts and play in my music and listen and I read a lot of, uh, or listen to a lot of uh, murder mysteries, really, it's about all. Except, you know, just recently I read a book about clairvoyance, which was amazing book. This clairvoyant, he worked for the Dutch police and did a lot of, I don't know, anyway, that's, I'm getting off the line here. But, but, but anyway, I, uh, I have this player that plays cassettes. And I listen to all this foolishness, I guess. Uh, yeah, I think you're a month or two older than I am. I'll be 91 in November. When, how old are you? Me? I'm Right now, I'm 94. You are 91 already, so you are a little older than I am. Well, I'm glad to meet somebody older than I am. <laughs> anyway, what I started to say was... Uh, at our age, we have to reconcile ourselves that some of the things will not be quite as spry as they were when we were children of 85 well, or so. We know. And uh, I've had to get used to the fact that I can't walk anywhere anymore. I'm well, in a wheelchair right. most uh, of the time. Not, neither, neither you or I are going to live forever. And yeah. I get fatalistic about it. I, I don't like the idea because I feel quite alive now. I don't not senile. And... Uh, yeah. I'm uh, still still swinging, and uh, I'm generally good disposition. I don't grieve or mope or anything like that, because it doesn't do much good. But, uh, uh, no, life is a wonderful thing, you know. Jack, you said when I, when I called you up, you said you're just getting off your bike. I ride this uh, exercise bicycle. It doesn't go anywhere. I just... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's right next to where I'm sitting now. I just get on and, and and go at it for 20 minutes or so, twice a day. Wow! But it's exercise. Exercise is supposed to be very, very healthy for old farts like Fred and me. <laughs> and Fred, do you exercise? Do I exercise? Yeah. Oh, oh yes, every day. Yeah, so I have I. a person come and help me six days a week. Well, well, I have this bicycle. You know, it just it doesn't go anywhere. It's just a stationary yeah. thing. I exercise with uh, a lot of enthusiasm because I've got an ambition. My ambition is to be able to go up to the second floor and use the shower there instead of the one down here. <laughs> I just got out of the shower. I can uh, do it, and I have done it, but it's uh, really difficult for me yeah. to do stairs. Incidentally, Fred, where, where do you live now? Whereabouts? Where am I living? I'm living in Illinois. That's because, uh, it's, well, well, the I'm, thing is, when I decided to marry Betty Ann Hull, my present wife, uh, yeah. 
She was a college teacher, and she couldn't move. And yeah. I'm a writer, and I can live anywhere. Yeah. So I moved over here. Well, I'm. We moved in. Uh, Norm and I moved into this place in 1940 or something. We haven't. And you're up in the hills of Frank. Well, in Frank Oakland isn't there anymore. In Oakland, yeah. But of course, we've done a lot of traveling, uh, and you have too, yeah. I think. But uh, we've been everywhere except China, Japan, and Russia. But yeah. uh, been everywhere else in the world. Well, I haven't been to. Let me think. Uh, Finland. I've never been in Finland either. We counted up once, and we've been in 64 countries, I think, in the last 25 years. And been on all the continents, including Antarctica. And I've never been in Antarctica. Well, there's not much to do in Antarctica. Come to think of it, I've never been in Greenland either. I should, yeah. I should mention that. But I've been in every state of the Union and all through Canada and Alaska and Mexico. So the, the North America, I've been everywhere and uh, all over Europe and, and all over Asia, Southeast Asia, except, as I say, Russia, China, and Japan. Oh, I tell you, Fred, you and I have covered the country pretty good. <laughs> pretty well. Well, yeah. between the two of us, I don't think we missed anything. I, I spent a lot of time in Russia, China, and Japan. Oh, you've been in Japan, huh? Oh, yeah. When I was going huh? to Cal, I studied Japanese language and uh, the Japanese writing. Yeah. And uh, did, you, did you ever uh, study Japanese language? I first time I went to Japan, I bought a uh, book of uh, how to learn Japanese. And I got through the first chapter, in which I discovered that there are four different ways of counting from one to fifteen. One well, they have katakana and hiragana. One of which is one of which is only for large elliptical objects. And I said, "The hell with that." Well, watakashi wa katsudo ikimashita. That's Japanese. <laughs> but, uh, I know. When uh, Arthur Clark and all those people and I were in Japan first, uh, the, the Japan, Japanese is is idiomatic language. To speak Japanese, you got to learn the idioms. The grammar yeah. is very simple, but the uh, to speak it, you have to just memorize idioms. You're speaking idioms, but uh, unlike any language that is uh, structured, you know. But anyway. Uh, Chinese, as you well know, is uh, speaking tones, four different tones. Yeah. Speaking Chinese, you know that, of course. I have no hope of understanding either. Yeah. No, they're they're tough languages. I never tried. I well, as I say, I I tried to learn Japanese. But this is just during the war, and I I I knew oh a lot of the uh, calligraphy. I, I was pretty good at the calligraphy, but then I couldn't understand the language very well. Yeah. It's a pretty, a pretty writing to look at, I'll say that for it. As the thing from Korean, which is ugly. Korean is ugly to look at. Oh, I don't know Korean, though. The, no, uh, I just know what the part it looks like. Well, the the temples teacher, are all very square. It, the, we had Korean teachers when I was studying Japanese. And he was talking about the Korean language, and he says, 
uh, well, we have uh, L's and the R's, and you come to an L, it's pronounced L or something. Then you have an R, it's... <laughs> we couldn't tell what the difference between an L and an R was. We seemed to know. That's Korean, of course. Yeah. Fred, you ever get you ever get out here in California? Uh, not so well. I was there about a year ago, but since then, the my legs had deteriorated. I have yeah. I have a problem. My uh, cervical vertebrae are squeezing the nerves that lead from my brain to the legs, not and that the legs are resenting it and they're atrophying. Well, you should start learning to walk on stilts. <laughs> well, I get around pretty well on a wheelchair. I can walk with a walker to some extent, but uh, it's not the free and easy strolling I'm used yeah. to. Whereabouts in Illinois do you live? Not in uh, outside Chicago. of Chicago, a place called Palatine. Oh, in Chicago, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. in Chicago. It's out. Yeah. About 25 well, I, or 30 miles from Chicago. Uh, I, it's, it's not bad, except the winters are horrible and we're about to get into one. Yeah. I used to know a girl that lived out in a suburb of Chicago, and I forgot the name of the place now. <laughs> there are about uh, a billion suburbs, yeah. Yeah. I've forgotten all about Of course, it's been long ago. Fred, can you just, you were going to talk about. Was it Arthur C. Clarke over in Japan? What was that? Oh, I was, I was just going to say that when we were there, uh, the Japanese had, well, there were a bunch of us there. They invited Arthur and me and uh, Brian Aldous and I think Harry Harrison and a few others to come and tour Japan as guests of the science fiction group. And we did. We got there. We appeared in Tokyo and we went down through a bunch of other little cities, or big cities, actually. But what I was trying to say was that, that they, they, to introduce us to the audience, they had a sort of skit on a stage in which each one of us was supposed to say all the words we could think of in Japan, in Japanese. <laughs> and I could think of a few words like Benjo and uh, Sayonara, and uh, that was about it. But Arthur actually recited a poem. Only I really think it was not in Japanese. I think it was in the language they speak in uh, where he lived, Sri Lanka, which is a kind of a bastard Indian dialect of some kind. But he Sri was Lanka, a big Lord, isn't it? Huh? Isn't that what Ceylon? Isn't Sri Lanka? They call it Ceylon. It used to be Ceylon. Sri Lanka, yeah. Um, did you mention Arthur Clark? No, Arthur, Arthur was oh. there. Oh. Even in those days, he was... Uh, Ceylon. Arthur Clark. Well, Ceylon and Sri Lanka are the same place. The other same place. Well, he he's, lives in um, Ceylon. Uh, the name main city. What's the hell of the name of it? I've forgotten now. But we yep. we were in Ceylon. We looked at looked him up there. He lives in a, or I don't know if he's he's not alive now. I don't think. I think he's dead. I think. Yeah. But he used to live in a big mansion with. My wife and I were planning to go there and live in in, uh, 
Jack. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we'll get back to the uh, the Hugos. Does this not make you want to write some more? Winning no, the no. I, I, no, I can't. I can't write anymore. I I dictated the autobiography, and, and a friend of mine uh, typed it out, you know. No, I've, my writing career is over, totally, quite a while ago. Would you not like to dictate this again and, and yeah, get no, some No, I... I I haven't the slightest urge to want to write anything more. <laughs> it just it's worked to me, Fred. I don't know about you. You're not writing anything. I don't imagine either. I'm sure, I am. Um, you are. Well, I published one book with Arthur Clarke last year, and I've got one another one finished. It'll be out next year. Oh, good for you, Fred. You've got more, more something than I well, have. No, I've given up. Well, I, I write for fun. I'm glad that they had me money for it. This my 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 hobby and my uh, my antidepressant. When I'm writing, I feel good. When I'm not writing, I feel lousy. I you know I haven't read any fantasy or science fiction for forever. I I just <laughs> it bores me nowadays. I, I it's not it doesn't interest me the slightest bit. I just like to read murder mysteries and detective stories and the non-fiction stuff. Yeah. I mentioned I... I read mostly non-fiction, too, but yeah. uh, there are a few science fiction writers around I like quite a lot. Yeah. I, know, I don't know anybody. I know uh, I've re- I've, I know Greg Bear pretty well. He married yeah. uh, Paul Anderson's daughter, as you know, yeah. Astrid. But he was down here. I went into him oh, three, four months ago. He lives up in Seattle, I think. He's a nice guy. Yeah, pretty good writer too. Apparently, uh, I haven't read any of the stuff that I knew of, uh, because I haven't read any, any, anything along that line for so long. It's I've forgotten. Yes, I, I know, know you haven't, and I regret it. I wish you would write again. No, no, no. I'm. Got better things. I'm more, no. I'm interested in music right now. That's my new career. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna. Good. I'm uh, gonna put these uh, CDs on the. I'm gonna try to sell them. It's gonna be mm-hmm. Jack Vance and the Short Tail Jazz Band. And uh, oh, good. I'm looking forward to hearing uh, it. My new career. 
I would love to, I, I love listening to music, and I would love to be able to produce it. And I did play the guitar for a while, but uh, it's a difficulty I've had with my limbs and the cervical vertebrae. Uh, yeah. I've met that my right hand is essentially para- oh, paralyzed, right. so I can't I don't play know. anything right Both now. Both of us are old farts nowadays, and, and we're getting a little longer the tooth, but can't be helped. If uh, hmm. only uh, the wandering Jew lived forever, as far as I know. <laughs> well, I don't want to live forever. I'm, I'm, I was lecturing one, and somebody asked me, uh, are you afraid of dying? And I hadn't thought about it much, and I said, no, uh, to me, dying mostly represents never again having to do anything I don't want to do. No, I don't like the idea of dying, but I... But as I say, I'm just fatalistic. I know I'm not going to last forever. I don't like the idea at all. But I'm having too much fun. Even being blind, I'm still enjoying being alive, you know. And uh, I don't like the idea of turning my toes up. But I don't have much choice. So I just shrug about it and say, oh, well, everybody's dead now. Including Hitler and Stalin are both dead. And... uh, King Arthur's dead, and all kinds of people are dead. And oh, listen, I just remembered something. Years ago, Jack, yeah. years ago, you and uh, Frank Herter and uh, Poole Anderson owned a houseboat. True. True. And in fact, you know, yeah. and how did you raise What it? happened was, Poole, uh, no, we, we, we had it, we were just working on it, and of the uh, pontoons and we worked, and then this big storm come up and it sank. Mm-hmm. And Frank Herbert, he he said, I, I I'm done with this. I'm he, he took off, and I don't have much respect for Frank Herbert. I think he's I won't go into details, but I don't <laughs> have any respect for him at all. I know him pretty well, but Paul and I we worked and got this thing up. Paul couldn't go in the water because he had bad ears. So I had to go in the water with wetsuit, and uh, and I, what what we did, I dove under the boat, and took some 50-gallon drums down there, pumped air into them, and raised the houseboat up. <laughs> and then we took took it ashore and fixed the pontoons. Then after that, we after it was finished, we uh, took it up the river up to. Uh, in California, we have these network of rivers up mm-hmm. uh, 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 oh, about uh, 50 miles east of where we live. And I tell you, we had so much fun in that damn boat up there. We'd go up there on weekends, get into it, take it out in the mooring, and drive it down the river and anchor someplace. And we'd go out and sit. The men would go out and sit in the porch, drink beer. Ladies be inside, cooking up something nice for dinner, and we'd sit there and watch the sun go down. I tell you, that's a, a wonderful item in my life, that old houseboat. But when we went traveling one day, I gave my share of it away to somebody or other. He took it out and sank it somewhere <laughs> as we saw the houseboat. It was 30... Let me think how long it was now. Thirty, 
32 feet long, 14 foot wide. It was, it was a lovely boat. Just It worked so beautiful and so much fun. If You know, I've thought if, if I was just a little younger and out of my eyesight, I'd almost be tempted to build another house boat. One time, I don't know if you know this or not, but Johnny and I were going to cruise the South Pacific, and we got this 40... Uh, 45 foot catch you know what a catch is I guess yeah. are you there yeah I'm there yep. I, I know what a catch is yeah well we got the catch call it Hinano which is a Tahitian tree it's also the Tahitian beer and it's also the name for Tahitian girls <coughs> and uh, that was our boat it's still cruising up here the Oakland estuary but we had to sell it because we just couldn't couldn't keep the payments up, and we just run out of gas, run out of money. And we had to sell it, I think. Which so we never did cruise the South Pacific, although we've been down there, down Tahiti and hmm. and other islands down there. Fred, <laughs> did you know your conventions? I heard this story once about Harry Harrison and Brian Aldous, the way they would always just be in the bar at conventions. Is that something you would like to do, or were you more, you know, getting involved? Well, you know, I was at the very first convention ever in Philadelphia in 1936, and that was a wonderful experience because I was with a whole bunch of people of my own faith, science fiction fans, and you don't get that privilege very often. So I was glad to go to all the conventions I could for quite a while. And I still am uh, when it's feasible for me to do so. Well, if I had my eyes, I'd, I'd like to go to conventions, but just for no other reason. I don't want necessarily want to cavort with the fans or anything, but just it's just kind of fun going there and as uh, and sitting around the bar and having fans buy your drink or two, you know. Yeah, Which is fun. Well, you know, I, um, some of my best friends are people I hardly ever see except at conventions. Yeah. So, I uh, learned, you know, you, I used to, when I go to conventions, the, if you're, I'd never go unless I was a guest of honor. And then you're expected to give a speech. And my first two, I memorized the damn things, and I'd get up and talk, and I'd forget my speech. Mm-hmm. Then after stumble around. But I discovered the best possible way of talking to a crowd. And I'll tell you my secret, which is it it's makes talking to crowds easy. What you do, you go up and stand in front of the crowd and uh, say, I'm not going to give you a speech, but I'm just going to answer your questions. Anybody wants to ask me a question, raise their hand. So I sit there and watch somebody raise their hand, say, yeah, what do you want? And they tell me the question, then I can answer it. I don't have to think, but just kind of uh, uh, let it flow, you know. And it's, it, I tell you, this is the easiest way to give a public address. You don't have to. You don't have to think. You don't have to memorize anything, which was pain in the ass for me, because every time I tried to memorize a speech and I wanted to discuss some point, I'd forget it, make a fool out of myself. Of course, I make a fool out of myself any other way, too, I guess. But anyway, that's my secret. That's a good secret. Well, I, could, I, 
I think the best part of any talk I've ever given to a Don has been in the questions at the end. But I find it difficult to get those questions unless I give them some short speech or other first. Yeah. So what I do is I talk for 10, 15 minutes or more, and then I say, okay, now I'll take questions, and then we'll start coming. Well, you, you've got the secret then, too, right? Well, I did an awful lot of public speaking one time or another. Well, I'm sure you did. Well, you're a very important, important guy, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, thank no, you. You were number one. You editor, writer, uh, general, general number one guy. Oh, remember, don't stop there. I mean, keep going. I'm enjoying time, it. Uh, <laughs> do you remember one time? There's this guy, I forget his name, he had got us up to uh, some place in Nevada, and uh, and I saw you there, hey, Fred, and uh, you looked at me and said, who the hell are you? And I said, I just said, never mind, Fred, and walked <laughs> away, and then a minute or so, you came up to me and said, that's you, son of a bitch, you, <laughs> I don't remember that or not. Uh, I don't know, remember, but it sounds yeah, entirely like a place up in Nevada. It was I'm, uh, very poor remembering places. Yeah. You know, I said, no, I said hey, now. Fred, you know, how you doing? I said, who are you? You know, I said, Fred, forget it. <laughs> Walked away from you. <laughs> and, uh, and then you came up behind me. You, you made some inquiries around. I said, who's that silly-looking guy over there? And he said, that's Jack Vance. You came up to me and said, Vance, you son of a bitch. <laughs> I remember I mean, that very well. I, I knew I was important in one sense uh, years ago because there was somebody going around the bookstores in California saying he was me. And uh, it wasn't me. It was some imposter. And I couldn't figure out why he was doing it. Um, I wasn't that famous at the time. I hadn't published a lot of the stuff that I really liked. And I hadn't made any big name for myself in California, <coughs> and I couldn't understand what he was doing. But um, he did it, and I finally found a way of making him stop because it made me very nervous how to do that. Fred, did you ever buy any of Jack's work? Yeah, yeah I loved it. I published the uh, Dragon Masters in the Galaxy. And you did uh, some of the uh, uh, novels, too. Uh, but I, yeah, remember, well, I, remember, I remember once, Fred, yeah. uh, was some, uh, I think I, I called him this Demon French, or, no, I forget, some series, but I used to put these epigraphs up in front of it, you know, uh, just some BS yeah. in front of it. And one time you told me to, to, that you didn't want these epigraphs and I, I got mad inside the hell with it, Fred. I don't like my epigraphs, and then I didn't yeah. even bother to well, send you any You got really words. mad at me about that. Next time yeah. I saw you, I don't know if you remember, was at an SFRA in Lake Tahoe. And uh, as I walked in, you met me and said, you shouldn't have done it, Fred. And you were <laughs> right. I shouldn't have messed with them myself. I should have asked you to cut them because I did believe and do believe they needed cutting. But it couldn't have been me to do it. It could have been you. But no, I love those epigraphs. I thought they were so funny. <laughs> I had the, the the 
the man. Well, they're, they're very nice, but they interrupted the flow of the story. Nonsense. They did no such thing. They're, uh, <laughs> no, you're wrong there. Uh, then I had Baron, the mad scientist. I forget what they are. It's been so long since I've had any con uh, connection with those stories. I don't think they interrupted the story. Uh, because there are only a couple paragraphs there. And, uh, and some of them were more than a couple of paragraphs. Well, whatever. It's been a long time ago, anyway. But anyway... Uh, oh, I remember that, too. It, it, uh, I don't think I ever saw another story from you after that. But Then I, I, I left Galaxy so. shortly after that. Yeah. No, I don't think I... Uh, no, I don't think... Uh, had any further connection with you. And uh, I don't remember whatever happened to those stories. I don't remember. Somebody published them. I don't know who. You got, uh, I, let's see, you got a, 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 a um, Hugo for Dragon Master, and you just got another one for your autobiography. And how many one? Have you won others, and how many? Did, uh, what? How many Hugos? Was that yeah. what you asked? I don't know how many, but I have a whole gang of... I get some for... Uh, Anthony Boucher gave me one for uh, Murder Mystery. And, uh, yeah, I... Uh, it was a murder mystery I wrote called Man in the Cage. I got an award on that. Oh, yeah? And, uh, huh? That was Murder Mystery I got an award for. I don't want to write murder mysteries, and I never wrote one that I liked. Have, have you ever write murder mysteries yourself? I wrote for the big detective magazines years ago, and I yeah. wanted to write a book, and I wrote one once and didn't quite like it and haven't tried since. No, I wrote some, I wrote, oh, ten, ten murder mysteries, and one of them got another, one called Bad Ronald, I think that got some kind of award, too. That's being reissued. They're reissuing that. Uh, Subterranean Press is, is bringing out uh, three of my murder mysteries, Bad Ronald, The Dark Ocean, and I forget the damn things. Mm -hmm. But uh, I haven't written any murder mysteries forever. Mm -hmm. Long time. Jack, you know your Hugos? Yeah. Do you, do you have them on shore, or are they just tucked away in a cupboard? I don't have them out. I had them both. Well, I used to go over to Paul Anderson's house. He had a lot of trophies. But Karen had them. Uh, his wife had them all strung out in a mantelpiece. And I I didn't... I had a, quite a few of them there and things, but I <laughs> had them tucked away downstairs. And uh, I didn't have them out at all, but uh, about... Three months ago, my son John found the things and he brought them back up and and put them out for me. I had nothing to do with it, but now I got them strung out in the top of a bookcase here. <laughs> I I can't see them, obviously, but uh, that's all right. Better to have them than not have them, I guess. Have you got the award, Jack, that you won this year? The Hugo has it arrived? Yeah, it came. Some people brought it over from Australia. They, uh, yeah, I have it here now. And you, Fred, yeah. have you got yours back yet, Fred? Oh, yeah, I got it. Uh, somebody uh, brought it back and uh, gave it. Uh, I haven't actually got it. I've got a photo of it. 
and I will get the Hugo itself sometime. One of the fans locally has it. And uh, I'll put it in the cupboard with all the others. I was going to ask you, have you got yours on show then, Fred? I have a cabinet full of uh, awards of one kind or another. I just had too many books on the shelves to put Hugo's there. (laughs) Well, I Um, didn't put them out. I, I, I thought it was kind of showing off, you know, to just have your trophies out and acted. It seemed like you're, uh, was there some word for it, a blowhard or something? I probably am, but I I was too, I just felt self-conscious. But Karen Anderson, she she made Paul keep his trophies out on the uh, out in plain sight. Well, I've only got the one and mine's on. Mine's all- out. You got yours? <laughs> yes, mine came because I had a friend who went to the convention and he had to go. He lives in New Zealand, so he had to post. Uh-huh. He had to post it out from New Zealand. But I got mine a couple of years ago, so I'm putting mine oh. on show because I've only got the one. <laughs> Fred, I've got Karen, Karen Anderson's still alive. You know, she's down in oh, yes, Australia. I, I saw her fairly recently. Yeah. And she writes, uh, she writes letters to my blog every once in a while. Yeah, well, I remember one time, uh, uh, Reg Bretner and Pole and Boucher, they got up a, a writer's club, I guess you'd call it, and we're supposed to meet every week and talk about over what we've been writing and and criticize each other and and so the meeting of the thing was over at my house here, and uh, Boucher came, and Bridge uh, Bretner, and Pole, and Karen, and me. So we're sitting mm-hmm. there. Karen uh, comes out with a what she's a, a, a manuscript, and she insists on reading it. It's Karen was crazy about vampires. It was just something about vampires that turned her on. I'm, I think this is not unknown about vampires having some sexual effect on, on ladies. <laughs> I've heard that. And But Karen, was a, she was a vampire freak. She used to dress herself up as a vampire. And so she came out with this vampire story. And Paul and uh, Bretner and Boucher and me were just sitting there. It was a rotten story, but uh, <laughs> that was the end. That was the end of the writers' group. We never, never had a second meeting. <laughs> Gentlemen, I could listen here all day. Are you, are you tired? Do you want to pack in, or do you want to keep on talking? Or well, I'm just going to pack it in pretty soon. Although I really am enjoying being interviewed by one Hugo winner along with another Hugo winner. I feel I'm in very good company. <laughs> not as not I as good think, company uh, we, as I am. Quite a group here. It, it, actually, it is kind of. Uh, I think we should be proud of ourselves. Really, the three of three luminaries here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm honestly I'm gobsmacked to be in the presence of you two great writers here. Um, oh, you kind of believe how excited and how thrilled I am to be speaking to you. <laughs> you know, do you ever hear how? Uh, Paul and Karen got married, or what happened was, uh, Karen, uh, there was some convention or something, and Karen came to that convention, 
and she cut pole out of the herd. She just, just <laughs> looked around and found somebody. She was uh, all kind of crazy about uh, that kind of stuff. She just come to the convention, and she just cut pole out of the herd and seduced him and married him. And that uh, pole got married to Karen. This was via Karen come to the convention and, uh, and looking around and seeing who was the best prospect, and she picked out Paul. Poor Paul. <laughs> so she did. She picked him out, huh? Yeah. Jack, you knew all the gossip. Uh, no, I don't know all that much. Well, listen, uh, gentlemen, I'd, I'd hate to end this, but I think you know I've I've kept you online far too long, anyways. I've enjoyed this conversation, and uh, we should do it again sometime. That would be, yeah, Fred. That would be lovely. That would be lovely, Jack. That would be lovely as well. Well, listen, Fred. Honestly, I can't thank you enough, Jack. I can't thank you enough. You've just oh, a pleasure, pleasure talking. You're very welcome. Take good care, righto. Goodbye. Take care. There you go. It was a pleasure to do that interview. And honestly, there was a few times when I tried to actually cut in and ask a question. And them two old boys weren't having any of it. They were just chatting on. Sometimes I do. I think they forgot I was there. But what a fantastic interview that was. Oh, made my dear. Jack Vance, Frederick Paul, thank you so much. Next up is our good friend, Mr. JJ Campanella, with his science news. Jim, sir. Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this September 2010 Science News Update. I'm your host for this evening's sweet repast of science victuals, Jim Campanella. Let's just get started. First, on a personal note, as I mentioned last month, I was supposed to attend a scientific conference in Portland, Oregon. The conference I attended was the annual meeting of the Plant Growth Regulation Society of America. I have little to say about the science presented at the meeting, since I suspect it was more than a little abstruse for most civilians, even those actually interested in science. One odd thing I will mention, however, is something strange that I experienced. I had never been to a PGRSA meeting before, even though some of my colleagues have. Now, I'm used to scientific conferences that have attendees of over a 1,000 people. Usually I go to the American Society of Plant Biology meeting, which has between 1,000 and 2,000 people attending. Well, this plant growth meeting was something else again. It had a total of about 75 people attending. Now, it's great to be noticed and known, but I also think anonymity is a nice thing, especially when there are hundreds of people in a room and you find the scientific talk being given tedious beyond belief and want to escape. It's nice to know that almost no one in the room knows or cares you are walking out. It is quite a different experience with less than 100 people there. Everyone notices everyone else, and whether they are present or not. Also, everyone tries to get to know you at a small meeting. And I am simply unused to having every person present in a room come up and introduce themselves. The other thing that struck me as unusual about the meeting was the number of scientists doing applied research work as opposed to the pure brand of science that I'm used to. Most people at this Portland meeting were horticulturalists, not plant physiologists, 
who were more interested in how to get better fruit yield or fruit size than any physiological basis behind those things. It was both intriguing and disconcerting to talk to these applied scientists about my own work, especially since a good deal of my work has to do with a goal of better understanding plant protein evolution. The question kept arising of how I would apply my enzyme work to growing better plants, and, well, I didn't have a good answer to that except in a vague, hand-wavy kind of way to the future. And let me tell you, that kind of answer does not appease horticulturalists. I guess it was a little like a theoretical physicist chatting with an engineer about building a quantum computer. I mean, the common language is there for both of them. They are not speaking a different language per se, but the goals of each are so different that communication becomes very difficult because they are across purposes. Well, enough about my personal discomfort. Let's get on with the first story of the night. You may remember a recent story that I related to you about users of methamphetamine strangely having their powers of memory increased. Also remember, it was performed in lab animals, and there was no basis yet to believe it really happened very well in humans. Additionally, I just pointed out at the time that even if the drugs did help your memory, they did so much damage, it simply was not worth using them. Well, this first story is about further damage that amphetamines can do to the delicate mammalian system. In the August issue of the American Heart Journal, Dr. Arthur Westover at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center reported that meth abusers face a, a more than threefold risk of developing a tear in their aortas. Uh, for those of you who don't remember, that's the huge artery that carries blood out of the heart to the body. Uh, physicians consider such a tear an emergency with catastrophic potential, and I can perfectly see why. There is actually a technical term used for this. Doctors call an aortic tear an aortic dissection. That should give you a hint as to how terrible it is. The authors say, quote, an aortic dissection brings on the most horrible chest pain imaginable. Patients say, I think I'm going to die. And they're right. Without treatment, the fatality rate is ultimately about 75%, unquote. In the new study, researchers scan the medical records of nearly 31 million patients nationwide, ages 18 to 49, who were hospitalized between 1995 and 2007. Codes on these records show that 3,116 had an aortic dissection. The researchers also took note of codes that revealed amphetamine abuse or dependence. Statistically, amphetamine abusers faced a 3.3 higher risk of developing a torn aorta than non-users did. Researchers calculated that amphetamine abuse, or dependence, accounted for slightly less than 1% of all aortic dissections in the database. Aortic tears occur most often in older people at an average age of about 62, according to doctors. And there are about 10,000 aortic dissections in the U.S. every year. And less than a quarter occur in people younger than 50. Of those younger people, 1% or fewer appeared linked to amphetamine abuse, according to the statistical data. People with chronic high blood pressure are known to be at high risk for aortic tears. Amphetamine triggers adrenaline release, which revs up blood pressure and may partly explain the link between the drugs and the aortic tears. 
A patient with an aortic tear is treated with medication to lower blood pressure and lessen the strain on the aorta. And often the condition requires surgery to install a synthetic graft that replaces the damaged blood vessel. The overall fatality rate of all patients, treated and untreated, combined seems to be about one in four. I guess all that makes it even clearer to probably steer clear of meth abuse. The next story is another in that long line of astronomic world records. Dr. Paul Crowther of the University of Sheffield and his colleagues described the largest star yet discovered in the August monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. The newly discovered star is about 265 times the mass of our own sun, Sol, and more massive than any other star known in the universe. At birth, the hefty star tipped the scales at about 320 suns, more than twice the generally accepted limit for a stellar newborn. Crowther examined massive stars in the Milky Way and the nearby neighbor, the Greater Magellanic Cloud. Four stars in the Greater Magellanic Cloud, dubbed R136, had temperatures more than seven times that of Sol and were several million times brighter and tens of times larger. Those properties combined with the age of the four stars indicated that each weighed more than 150 suns at birth. Theoretically, one of those, R136A1, was more than twice that mass when it was formed. Theoretical studies also indicated that such heavyweights could have formed only during the first few hundred million years of the universe when its chemical makeup favored formation of such massive stars. Stars from 8 to 150 sun masses eventually die as supernovas. Even bigger stars from 150 to 300 suns may end their lives in even bigger explosions known as pair instability supernovas, which were once thought to have occurred only in the early universe. I guess that's no longer the case, although it seems unlikely that any astronomer is going to be observing one of those very soon, at least nearby our own galaxy, since there are so few stars of that enormity nearby. The next three stories of the night fall into the eyebrow-raising category. I think they are all kind of cool, but others might find them gross or even inappropriate. Let me give you fair warning before we continue that these stories involve sperm, penises, and poop. Although I assure you, those stories are quite separate from each other. Those who are particularly squeamish may want to skip ahead a few minutes in the podcast. Let's start off with the sperm story. A new study published in the July PLOS Genetics Journal and written by a team headed by Dr. Eugene Zhu of Northwestern University suggests that a gene called Boole arose 600 million years ago and has been crucial to sperm production ever since. The Boole sperm-producing gene appeared at the dawn of animal evolution and is present in every sperm-producing animal studied from sea anemone to people. That result suggests that all male reproductive cells evolved from a common ancestor. Until now, scientists weren't sure if sperm production evolved several times in different animal lineages or if a single ancestor started the ball rolling. Most animal sperm goes through strikingly similar developmental stages, which suggests a common origin. But no one had yet found a reproductive gene common to all animals until now. Zoo's team knew that 10 to 15% of 
infertile men lack a gene called DAZ, and that two ancestral forms of that gene, BOOL and DAZL, are needed for fertility in a few other animal species. But the researchers didn't know if they'd find similar genes in other animals or whether those genes would also produce sperm. So the team searched through a database containing genetic information on a broad spectrum of organisms looking for key gene sequences that are common to bull, DAZL, and DAZ. Fungi and plants lacked the gene, which was not surprising, as did really ancient animals, such as sponges, but all other animal lineages, from cnidarians and mollusks to fish, birds and primates, did have the gene. Zhu says, quote, This is strong evidence that the bull gene is only required for sperm production in insects and in mammals, which diverged 400 to 600 million years ago. Unquote. Zhu's team then tested mice to be sure bull was in charge of just sperm production not more general cell processes. It turned out that the bull protein was found only in mouse testes, and if bull was disrupted, otherwise healthy mice did not produce sperm. Zoo says his team will look next in mice and fruit flies to see exactly where the bull protein shows up, when it does, and what exactly it seems to do. There is a point to all this. With more study, researchers might be able to kill pests by specifically disrupting the insect form of the protein. Although they had better be damned careful, it does not have an effect on the mammalian version of the protein. Also, now that researchers know sperm genes are similar among animals, experts can study human infertility more easily in animal models than they could ever have done in humans themselves. Okay, onward to the penis story. Dr. Patricia Brennan of Yale University offered the first evidence in vertebrates that social circumstances influence penis size. She reported her work at a talk given at the annual meeting of the Animal Behavior Society. Okay, I'm sure that many of you have your jaws hanging open, gaping at the moment, But yes, Brennan's work does suggest that penis size changes depending on the social milieu. But this appears to be the case in duck penises, not human. From a reproductive standpoint, at least in certain animals, size does matter. Brennan's measurements find that the maximum length of a duck's penis depends on the company he keeps. And in this case, it's his fellow males who make the difference. Unlike mammals, a drake's penis substantially wastes away at the end of one breeding season and then regrows as the next season begins. Among ducks, the regrowth varies in length or time depending on whether males have to compete with a bunch of other males. In many bird species, males don't grow the specialized organs to deliver sperm. Ducks typically do, their penises sometimes reaching considerable lengths. In a ruddy duck, for example, It reaches up to 25 centimeters, which is more than half of its body length. That length may give a male advantage in delivering sperm when females have multiple mates. Brennan's work has previously documented strong sexual conflict in male and female ducks. It's common for males to force copulations. And for their part, the females employ strategies such as corkscrew-shaped vaginas, developed over the course of duck evolution to thwart male control of reproduction, obviously making it harder to copulate. 
and you thought humans in single bars had a hard time getting together. To see whether competition among males influences penis growth, Brennan housed some of her drakes in groups of seven to eight males with just five or six females. Other males lived with just one female. Brennan reported that males competing in groups grew penises 15% longer and sometimes up to 25% longer than drakes with no mating rivals. The results shed light on how ducks became so well-endowed compared with other birds, Brennan says. It also explains why some species of ducks have sexual relations which seem rife with conflicts, with males often forcing themselves on females in, quote, chaotic mating scenes, unquote. Brennan says, quote, It's really like having a longer penis evolved in male-male competition. Guy-versus-guy battles then could have started playing a role in battles between the sexes. The animals are essentially engineering their own phallus in response to social challenges. Unquote. What more can I say about that? And now, finally, the promised poop story. Sorry about this. Spending so much of my time with preschoolers does eventually have some effect. I guess that poop stories are one of those effects. Dr. Laurent Dormont from the CNRS Centre d'Ecologie Functionnelle et Evolutionnaire published a story this month in the Journal of Experimental Biology, which examines what kind of poop dung beetles like best. Now, I would never have thought that dung beetles have much of a preference. Poop pretty much seems the same to me. But apparently they do have a preference, and poop is not the same. I'm not alone, by the way. Most scientists thought it was only the general volatile compounds found in most dung that attracted the beetles. But that appears to be not the case. For those of you who do not know dung beetles, they spend all their lives from egg to adult in and around piles of dung. They hasten its decomposition, either by transporting it into the ground or consuming it. They are a very important and active part of the ecosphere. Dormont noticed that the beetles did seem to hang out with certain types of dung more often than others. He wondered whether a dung beetle's dung preferences are hardwired or set by the environment they encountered during their development. Dormont collected freshly laid French scarab beetle eggs from cow pats and fields around Montpellier. He brought the eggs back to the lab and settled them either in one, fresh cow pats, two, horse pats, three, sheep pats, or four, wild boar pats. I don't know where he got the wild boar dung from. After allowing the eggs to hatch and the larvae to develop into adults, Dormont tested the insects' preferences. He offered them the choice between cow pat and horse dung or cow pat and wild boar dung. The team was surprised to see that the beetles always chose to settle in the cow pat, regardless of which type of dung they had been raised in. And the beetles also preferred sheep dung, even when they had developed in horse or wild boar dung. Dormont said, quote, This was a surprising result. We thought that the insects would prefer the dung volatiles in which they had developed. But when we did the experiment, the insect preferred cattle or sheep dung, even if they came from wild boar or horse dung. Unquote. When the team tested how the presence of other dung residents affected scarab responses, they found that the beetles avoided dung that had been colonized by other species. 
but happily settled in Dung, occupied by their own kind. Finally, Dormont teamed up with chemist Jean-Marie Bessier to analyze the volatile components from each type of dung to see if they could identify the compounds that the beetles found so irresistible. Dormont collected samples of each odor and analyzed them with combinations of gas chromatography and mass spectrometry. And he said, quote, Jean-Marie Bessier is a flower scent specialist, so for him it was really new, and he was very excited to identify dung odors. He knows plant odors well. However, the volatiles in dung have been transformed by digestion, so it was difficult for him to analyze and identify these compounds. Unquote. The team eventually found that cow dung turned out to have the most complex odors, with 36 volatile compounds, while the wild boar dung was the least complex, with only 25 compounds. So far, that all means very little. Dormont is going to continue his research by identifying which of those volatile compounds the beetles respond to in an electrophysiological manner. In other words, which of those gases triggers the nervous system of the beetle to send a signal that here is the perfect place to settle down and call home? Yuck. I find the last story of the night particularly interesting since I observed some of these phenomena myself just a couple of weeks ago. While I was in Oregon, my family took a little road trip down the Columbia River. This is the big river that runs through Oregon and down past Portland to the sea. You may have heard of it in the Woody Guthrie song, popularized by Pete Seeger, Roland Columbia. Part of that song refers to the Bonneville Dam, which crosses this very large river and provides a good deal of electricity to the region. My wife, a native Oregonian, had never seen the dam, Oddly, I guess, like native New Yorkers who seldom visit the Statue of Liberty. Well, while at the dam, we witnessed something very cool. As part of the dam site, they had underground windows set up so that you could view the fish ladders of the dam underwater. Fish ladders, if you don't know, are special pathways set up that allow fish to bypass the dam and swim upstream to spawn. So my family spent a good 30 to 40 minutes just staring as fish were swept back and forth across this very fast-moving water, trying to swim upstream against a current which seemed well-nigh impossible to penetrate. We had to wonder how the trout and salmon we saw were able to live at all under such conditions. Well, a story in this month's Journal of Experimental Biology may have at least a partial answer to how fish live in such turbulent water. Dr. Anja Prisbila from the University of Bonn, examined trout that seemed to be able to hold their position just to the side of and behind obstacles in rivers using only a gentle swimming action. This behavior is known as entraining. She decided to find out how trout apparently defy their turbulent environment and hold a steady station while entraining. She placed a 5-centimeter semicircular cylinder in a flow tank with water flowing at about 42 centimeters a second. She then allowed individual trout to find a location where they were happy to hold station near that cylinder and film them swimming with high-speed video. She found that the fish spent almost 30% of their time swimming in the entraining positions, either to the left or the right of the cylinder's corners. She was also struck that instead of swimming continuously, the trout interspersed periods of undulating swimming with brief periods lasting less than a second of inactivity. Prisbila explained that during the period when the fish was inactive, it drifted back slightly, 
recovering its position quickly when it restarted swimming. The fluid dynamics acting on the fish must have been almost perfectly balanced while the fish was stationary. She then used computational fluid dynamics to build a mathematical model to explain the unexpected behavior. She and her team found that the angled fish's body behaved like an aerofoil, with the forces generated by the fast-flowing water between the fish's body and the D-shaped obstacle canceling out the lift and drag forces exerted on the body by the water flow. Prisbila says, quote, The calculations pointed out that this is an energetically beneficial way of swimming because it is low cost, unquote. Finally, the team decided to directly visualize the fluid flows around a fish using lasers. Since there was no way to force the fish to swim in a thin plane of laser light, they built a model of a fish's body and positioned it in the water like an entraining trout. The flows behaved exactly as the model had predicted. So trout that live in fast-flowing water take advantage of the turbulence to save energy while in training. Again, I find this fascinating, but it still doesn't explain how they can ever make serious distance swimming upstream against such massive downstream currents. It just explains how they can keep from getting battered about by staying in one place while in training. Maybe that's their next project. Well, that's all for me from now. As always, take care. Look out for rapidly copulating ducks, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Always a pleasure, Jim. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Next up is our main fiction, and it comes from Paul J. McCauley with a story called Rocket Boy. Paul J. McCauley has been earning a living writing novels, short stories, and, he says, occasional pieces of journalism since 1996. A year or two ago, we played Paul's Little Lost Robot, which was a great story. At the moment, Paul's got the Quiet War series, which is The Quiet War, which came out in 2008, and Gardens of the Sun, which came out in 2009. He's also wrote novels Red Dust, Fairyland, Secret of Life, The Whole Wide World, White Devils, Mind's Eye, Players and Cowboy Angels, and lots and lots of short stories, and we'll try and get a few more short stories by Good friend, Mr. Paul J. McCauley. This story is narrated by FHN. FHN records audiobooks for LibriVox, runs audio reviews, blogs, and personal blogs. I will put a link on to all these sites if you want to go over and say hello to FHN. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present Rocket Boy by Paul J. McCauley. Rocket Boy lived under a knot of ferro-concrete ribbons where the road from the spaceport joined the beltway that girdled the city. He'd made a kind of nest in a high ledge beneath the slope of an on-ramp, and although the traffic rumbled overhead day and night, it was as cosy and safe as anywhere on the street could be, because it was reached only by squeezing through a kind of picket fence of squat, close-set columns. Even so, Rocket Boy clutched a knife improvised from the neck of a broken bottle while he slept in his nest of packing excelsa, charity blankets and cardboard. The first lesson he'd learned on the street was that you needed to carry a weapon with you at all times. The ledge was divided into two by expansion rollers at the joint between ramp and road. The old man who lived on the other side of them had been a senior civil servant before the war. He had been arrested and tortured after the enemy had taken the city, serving two years in solitary confinement before being released 
and then discovering that his family had been killed when a rogue cruise missile had leveled their neighborhood. He and Rocket Boy had quickly come to an accommodation. The old man guarded Rocket Boy's nest while he was out on the street selling cigarettes. Rocket Boy brought the old man hot dogs and soup from the charity workers who visited the intersection every night, distributing free food and blankets to the people who lived there. More than two hundred people lived amongst the support columns and steep concrete slopes under the intersection, in old cars, cardboard boxes, and crude huts built from dead shopping carts and pallets, and sheets of plastic tied down with twine and electrical wire. Some were refugees and war orphans like Rocket Boy. Some were the city's orphans, hard-eyed, feral runaways. Some were men and women turned old before their time by drink and drugs and madness. There was a little flock of shopping carts, and other small mechs too, on the run from the wrecking gangs that roved the bombed-out industrial sector to the west. They stood all day in the sunlight, trying to recharge their rotting batteries, and at night rolled about trying to be helpful, and mostly getting in the way, like sick pets no one had the heart to put down. The perimeter of the spaceport was only a mile away from the intersection. Once or twice a week, a heavy lifter took off from one of the massive blast pits, shaking the ground and splitting the sky with a long peal of thunder. The crazy people ran about beating their heads and tearing at their clothes, and the carts and mechs were disturbed too, racing about in circles like bugs suddenly exposed to light. At night, Rocket Boy liked to sit on an embankment that overlooked the spaceport, watching ordinary jets and ground-to-orbit shuttles glide through the white columns of searchlights towards runways outlined by a mile-long traceries of red and green lights. Occasionally there was a night launch, the spacecraft small and sharp in crossing beams as it brewed clouds of steam and clouds of fire, rising achingly slowly at first, and then accelerating away in a rising curve, a spear of flame dwindling into the starry sky. Rocket Boy watched it go with a raw longing that ate like a fresh wound, the earth beneath him throbbing with the thunder of its engines. He was sixteen, and had been living on the streets for almost two years. At first he called himself Vigo, after the hero of a comic he'd read just before the war, when he'd still been a kid, when he'd still had a family and a future. But he had soon discovered that on the street, nothing, not even your name, is your own. The young hoodlum in charge of the gang of street sellers had started to call him Rocket Boy because of his unnatural fascination with the spaceport and because that was the name of a brand of cigarettes he sold loose at the intersection of Fourth Avenue and Industry Way and the name had stuck. Rocket Boy worked from dawn to dusk seven days a week selling Rocket Boy cigarettes to the men and women who worked in the fabricants and warehouses. Time moved oddly on the street. Every day seemed interminable but because each was the same as the one before, weeks and months slipped by like vehicles streaming along the freeway. In winter, dust blew out of the north and shrouded the city in a yellow pole. In summer, flocks of noctids swooped through the dusk air after insects, and the inhabitants of the little shanty town at the intersection knocked them out of the air with sticks and crude bowlers made from stones and wire, and then made a gummy soup by boiling up their wings. One summer night... In the middle of a long heat wave, Rocket Boy had given up on sleep and was sitting high on the embankment watching the lights of the spaceport shimmer across kilometres of blast pits and landing strips and concrete aprons when a vehicle braked hard somewhere above him. A sliding screech, a blare of horns. As Rocket Boy scrambled to his feet, a man vaulted the safety barrier and slid down the dry bank, asking him if he knew a place to hide. He was taller 
and skinnier than any one rocket boy had ever seen, with dark brown skin and black hair greased back from a hawkish profile. He wore heavy boots with steel buckles and straps, filthy jeans, and a denim jacket with many zippers and fastness. A small leather duffel bag was slung over his back. There was a gold socket above one ear, and his eyes were capped with data lenses that blankly reflected the last of the light dying out of the sky as he looked up at the edge of the road above, head cocked. A moment later, Rocket Boy heard the wail of sirens and whirling blue lights swept past on the beltway. "'Got into a little trouble,' the man said. "'My mate will lead them a good old chase, "'but they'll catch him soon enough, "'and he'll have to tell them where I jumped. "'So I need a place to lay low, "'just for a few hours until the maintenance worker's shift changes, "'and I can sneak into the port. "'Help me out, and I'll give you your heart's desire.' "'Rocket Boy knew the man was trouble, "'but he also knew that the man was one of the spacers "'who travelled amongst the worlds beyond, "'worlds full of wonders beyond measure or understanding.' where he so very badly longed to go, and he led him to the intersection, through the close-set maze of pillars to his nest. The man declared it an ideal bolt-hole, took a swig of whisky from a flat bottle, and promptly fell asleep. Rocket Boy, a hundred questions bubbling through his head, sat in the dark knee to knee with his strange guest, listening for police sirens, and presently fell asleep too. He woke when the spacer stirred. It was three or four in the morning, and still dark. The traffic on the beltway was as sparse as ever it got. Rocket Boy took the spacer, who told him that his name was Arpad, to the solitary standpipe that supplied the water to everyone who lived under the intersection, and then walked with him along the industry way towards the bus stop at the crossroads. Arpad told him that he was from Earth, like most of the human race, said that by the university's clock he was 750 years old, give or take a decade but most of that was down to time compression. Said that he'd visited most human worlds, and this one was the most miserable he'd ever seen. Of course, you've just had yourselves a revolution, but still. It was a war, not a revolution. Our enemy took our country from us, Rocket Boy hesitated, and then said in a rush, One day I want to go up and out. There's nothing for me here. If you go up and out, you'll lose everything you ever knew or loved people, your home, your country. You can't ever go home again. Time compression will see to that. I've already lost all that. If I went up and out, I wouldn't ever want to come back. Arpad studied Rocket Boy sidelong. I guess the war here didn't do you any favours, huh? Rocket Boy shrugged, feeling a twinge of the old bitter hurt he could never bury deeply enough. He'd never talked about it with anyone, not even the old man. What was it about this war of yours? The enemy wanted our fertile land. There isn't enough, just strips here and there around the edge of the land. The enemy had a bad drought, and they took our country because they wanted to steal our good river land. Hmm. What I don't understand is, when you've got a continent here the size of Asia and America combined, and everyone lives at the edge of the sea, how come you people don't try to settle inland? Man I work for came here to hunt big critters that live there but there's no kind of critter so fierce people can't deal with them. It isn't the monsters, Rocket Boy said. It's the wild itself. He told the spacer about the deserts beyond the mountains where no rain fell for years on end, and about the endless dust storms and tornadoes and lightning storms, about how in the centre of the wild it was so hot in the day that water boiled and so cold at night that it froze. He told him the story everyone learned in school about the man who in the early days of settling the world 
had claimed he was the son of God, and had led a hundred followers across the mountains to a valley where water could be raised from deep aquifers. But insects had eaten most of their crops, dust storms had destroyed the rest, and when the survivors had been discovered two years later, they had resorted to cannibalism. I guess things look a lot simpler from orbit, Arpert said. They had reached the crossroads, and he was looking around at the long low mounds of rubble that before the war had been warehouses and factories. I can't access the city's infrasystem, kid. Are you sure this is where I get a bus into town? The first one comes at five. What about the police? I don't think they'll expect me to catch a bus. I know a couple of people in town who work in the port. One of them will lend me his ID, and I can use it to get into the port when the shift changes. And once I'm aboard my ship, that's it. Home and free. Dawn was unpacking pale bars of light to the east. To the west, both moons were chasing each other below the sore edge of the naked mountains, and a few stars still showed in the deep purple sky. Rocket Boy wondered if one of them was the star of Earth, wondered if that was where our pad was headed. Some fifty or sixty years away by universal time, less than a month shipboard. If he went with the spacer and came straight back home, a century would have passed. Everything would be changed. Perhaps the enemy would be gone. Far down the road, a single point of light slowly resolved into a double star. The bus was coming. Arpad began to search through his duffel bag. I promise to give you something, kid. Here, take it. It was a pistol. The poisonous green of potatoes left too long in the sunlight. It wasn't much bigger than Rocket Boy's hand. The power LED set at the rear of the reaction chamber sparked bright red. There were red inserts in a grip still moulded to fit precisely the hand of its previous owner. Hold it tight, Arpad said, pushing the weapon into Rocket Boy's hand, and then poked at a microswitch with the blade of a small penknife. A hologram bloomed in the air, big as an open book. The spacer stabbed at its silky light with a dirty finger, selecting a submenu from the index, selecting several functions of the submenu. Rocket Boy almost dropped the pistol when the grip moved under his fingers. Suddenly it fitted his hand as if it had grown there. You need a password, Arpad said. Something uncommon. Sing it out nice and clear three times. Ready? Rocket Boy nodded. Arpad touched one of the red buttons on the insubstantial page hung in the air above the pistol pointed at Rocket Boy. Vigo, Rocket Boy said. His mouth was dry, his heart was beating in his temples. Vigo! Vigo! Now it's yours, Arpad said, slinging his duffel bag over his shoulders as the bus stopped beside them with a thunderous hiss of air brakes. Before you decide what you're going to do with it, you should talk with it, learn what it can do. It's a clever thing. It'll give you pretty good advice if you ask it the right questions. I hope you have better luck with it than I did, he added, and climbed aboard the bus. Later, Rocket Boy realised that the spacer had left him the pistol because, disguised as a maintenance worker, he wouldn't have been able to smug it through the security checks at the port. He also realised that the pistol was probably the reason why the spacer had been running from the police. He'd brought it here to sell, and something had gone wrong. Someone had betrayed him or they had themselves been betrayed, and he'd had to dump it. The spacer could simply have thrown it away, Rocket Boy thought. Instead, chance or fate had caused it to fall into his hands, and because it was unlikely he'd ever be so lucky again, he must make the most of the opportunity. He didn't go to work that day. Instead, he spent all morning and most of the afternoon in his nest, talking to the pistol. It taught him its functions. 
and once it was certain that he had grasped the basic principles of its operation, asked him what he wanted to do. I don't know. Perhaps I have asked the wrong question, the pistol said. Tell me instead what you most need. Rocket Boy wanted his family back. He wanted everything back the way it had been before the war. But he knew that nothing, not even this magic little weapon, could give him that. He said, I want to be safe. Who is threatening you? No one. Everyone living on the street. You feel that every moment could be your last. Perhaps you should tell me how you came to be here, the pistol said. It teased the story out of him, piece by piece. Rocket Boy found himself telling it things he had never told anyone else. He told it about the war, that had started after the enemy had tried to block the flow of a major river. He told it about the so-called popular revolution, supported by the enemy, and the night of the long knives when most of the government and dozens of senior officials, including his mother and father, had been assassinated. He told it that he and his younger brother and three sisters had been attempting to escape the city and reach the house of their aunt when their vehicle had been caught in a firefight between loyalists and a brigade of enemy soldiers. There had been an explosion which had knocked the car on its side, and he'd woken to find himself in the chaos of a hospital that was attempting to deal with hundreds of civilian casualties. Suffering from concussion and a broken wrist, he had gone to look for his family, walking all night and most of the next day, only to discover that his aunt's house had been burned to the ground. After failing to find any of his family or friends, he had fled the city, and for a year had worked on a huge collective farm in the wide fertile river valley. But when a new law forced casual workers to register with a union, he had been scared that the cheap hack that had altered his ID chip would be discovered, and he had returned to the city and had been living under the intersection ever since. After a short silence, the pistol said, do you require advancement or revenge? I used to think that I could hunt down the man that had my parents killed, Rocket Boy said. Do you know the name of that man? Do you know where he lives? Do you know how he is protected? Someone else said, If you want true revenge, you'll have to destroy the occupying force and the puppet government. It was the old man. He raised his hands in a warding gesture when Rocket Boy, angry and afraid, asked him how much he'd heard and said, I suppose just about everything. What is your real name, Rocket Boy? Who was your mother and your father? It is possible I worked for them in happier times. It doesn't matter who they were now. Yet you want to revenge their deaths. If you let me, I can help you. I assume that spacer you sheltered last night gave you the pistol. What if he did? It's like no other weapon on this world. An all-purpose hand weapon with nanotech forge and a near AI colonel. Very powerful and smart. The pistol said, I also possess a database that includes several million tactical scenarios. Be quiet, the old man said sharply, and the pistol shut up at once. The old man smiled at Rocket Boy. You have to let it know that you are its master, and make sure it does not attempt to find a way of manipulating you. We don't have AIs on our world. They're far beyond the capability of our world's technological base. But I am familiar with them because I worked at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs before the war. I've negotiated with many a trade delegation in my time, and I once travelled to another star system. You wouldn't think it to look at me, but it's true. Rocket Boy believed him. The old man squatting in the tattered rags, hair hanging around his leathery face in filthy dreadlocks, possessed a dignity he hadn't noticed before. 
"'Tell it what you want,' the old man said. "'Give it an order. Make a wish. Start with something simple.' Rocky Boy thought, long and hard, and then said, "'I wish I wasn't living on the street.' The pistol said, "'My analysis of your story suggests that this is an E or F catalyst society. Am I correct?' The old man's smile showed the blackened tombstones of his teeth. He said, "'Much has changed since the war.' but I believe that we still have money. The pistol said, Tell me, who supplies the cigarettes that you sell? Kalim was tall and quick-tempered, and ruled his little gang by fear. He beat anyone who showed any sign of hesitation, or answered back when he gave an order, and sometimes he would pick on someone and beat them, just to keep the others in line, remind them who was in charge. He'd beaten all the boys who worked for him more than once, and let it be known that he had killed people who'd let him down, with this very knife, he liked to say, holding up the six-inch ceramic blade. Afterward, I lick off the blood. Nothing tastes sweeter than the blood of your dead enemies. Every morning, Callum and his two sidekicks drove up in a battered car and handed out cigarettes. Every evening, they returned to inspect the takings of each boy. Sometimes Callum took only half. Sometimes he took everything. The day after the spacer gave the pistol to Rocket Boy, Kalim climbed out of the car and went straight for him, getting right in his face, asking him where he'd been yesterday, asking him if he'd enjoyed his holiday, pushing him with angry little shoves until he was backed against a support pillar. The two sidekicks leaned against the car, enjoying the show. The other cigarette boys stood in a loose knot, watching it too, and shopping carts and mechs had crept up on either side, attracted by the disturbance. High on a concrete slope, a madwoman barked like a dog. Callum grasped Rocket Boy's throat in one hand and turned to his audience, producing his knife with a theatrical flourish, saying loudly, None of you little jerks take off time unless I allow it. Time is money, and all the money around here is mine. When you take time off, you steal from me, and then I get to teach you a lesson, like I'm going to teach this little worm. That was when Rocket Boy shot him. He was holding the pistol in the pocket of his tattered jerkin and thrust its muzzle against Kalim's leg and pulled the trigger with a convulsive effort. The pistol made a tremendous noise, a thunderclap that echoed and re-echoed under the crossing ribbons of on-ramps and beltway, shocking hundreds of roosting noctids into the air. Kalim staggered backwards, clutching his bloodied thigh, clutching at his belly, and then his chest as the smart little bullet burrowed upwards. It detonated when it reached his heart, and he spewed a pint of blood and fell down and didn't move again. The biggest of the two sidekicks drew a pistol, an ordinary automatic, and Rocket Boy shot him too. The self-guiding bullet drilled a hole in his forehead and blew his skull apart. The other sidekick froze, drenched in his companion's blood and brains, his hands half raised in surrender. The other kids watched silently as Rocket Boy climbed onto the car and told them that he was taking charge of the business. I promise that I will only take half of what you earn. No more, no less, he said, and there will be no more beatings. That evening, the sidekick, a boy by the name of Vance, drove him to the cafe where the cigarettes were distributed. The pistol had injected, shot Vance with a smart bullet, and Rocket Boy told him that he would live as long as he was loyal, but if he even thought of betraying or revenge, the bullet would kill him at once. At the cafe, following the advice of the pistol, Rocket Boy turned over the money he had taken from the cigarette sellers to the fat man Vance pointed to, and explained that from now on 
He was running Callum's pitch. The fat man barely looked up from the food he was spooning into his mouth, saying, I don't care what you punks do, as long as you bring in the gelt. And that was that. Later that evening, in Callum's cold-water apartment at the edge of the industrial district, the pistol told Rocket Boy that there was a high probability that one of the gangsters who ran the neighbouring pitches would try to take the business away from him. They will think you weaker than them. They will think that you killed Callum by a stroke of luck. Rocket Boy said, And if I kill the man who tries to kill me, will it stop there? The day had left him exhausted, excited, and agitated. He didn't regret the deaths of Kalim and the sidekick for a moment. All the anger and the hurt he had suppressed for so long had been released when he'd shot them. When she'd killed someone, he discovered, your own life mattered less, and there was a wonderful freedom in that knowledge. But he felt a yawning apprehension now that he realised that he had stepped through a door into a new world, and there was no going back. Do not worry, the pistol said. It sat in his lap, its power LED twinkling like a bayful star. I have fully gained this situation. As long as you follow my advice, nothing will go wrong. A little later, as Rocket Boy was falling asleep, it added, You are a willing pupil. We will go far, you and me. His enemies came for him two days later, just after he'd distributed the bags of cigarettes to his gang of sellers. Two cars roared into the dusty arena under the beltway, each discharging a pair of pale thugs armed with assault rifles. By now the pistol had learned how to control the little machines that had taken refuge under the intersection, and a rattling flock of shopping carts immediately charged the thugs. Rocket Boy shot three of them while they were fighting off the machines, and when the survivor tried to run, he was knocked down by a shopping cart. Rocket Boy walked up to him, followed by two battered service mechs, and asked him who had sent him. The young thug tried to spit in his face, and at the pistol's prompting, one mech lit up its welding torch, and the other snapped the pincers of its hand an inch from the man's face. If you don't talk, Rocket Boy said calmly, I'll let the machines take you apart. That night, Rocket Boy killed the gangster who had sent the thugs after him, and took over his pitch, but the pistol and the old man soon persuaded him that selling cigarettes was not enough. After spending a month training the toughest of the street kids and earning their loyalty, he began to hold up trucks bringing food into the city from the river valley. He gave half of the stolen produce to hospitals and community leaders. After the war, food was expensive and in short supply, and many families could barely afford basic rations, and sold the rest at knock-down prices to market traders. Soon produce trucks were moving only in convoys guarded by soldiers, and Rocket Boy changed his tactics and liberated a large quantity of medicines and drugs from a warehouse owned by the Minister of Health. The old man, whose name was Yan Yan, had discovered from former colleagues in the civil service that the man had been skimming supplies and selling them on the black market. A week after this coup, Rocket Boy was invited to a meeting with the heads of the three families who controlled drugs, gambling and prostitution in the city. He went with the old man, Yan Yan, and two burly sidekicks. He did not take the pistol because it had been made clear that he could not carry a weapon to the meeting. But the pistol had briefed him extensively beforehand. They want to meet you because they are intrigued by you, it had told Rocket Boy. If they wanted to kill you, they would have done it already. Instead, they believe that you can make a lot of money, and they want to claim a share in it. So it turned out. 
Rocket Boy gave each of the heads of the three families a generous cut of the profits he had made from the truck hijacks and the warehouse job. He told them that he did not want any share of their businesses, but proposed a new business of his own. He would organize a security service for the people of the city. He sat at the far end of a long polished table in an expensive new suit, Yan Yan at his left hand. He felt cool and calm facing the three men and their phalanx of advisers and lieutenants and bodyguards. The worst they could do was kill him, and he knew now that dying was nothing. He spoke clearly and with great force, staring into each of their faces in turn. The police are corrupt, and they are owned by the puppet government. The people hate them more than they hate the soldiers that occupy our city. I will organize block committees of volunteers who will patrol their own streets and deal with troublemakers as they see fit. In return for this protection, every business will pay a small amount into a common fund, less than they currently pay in kickbacks and protection money to the police. Your businesses will be exempt, of course. What will you do when the police try to shut you down? One of the men said. I will deal with the police, Rocket Boy said. He struck two weeks later, after extensive discussions with community leaders across the city. They were more than willing to listen to him. He had earned considerable kudos by distributing free food and medicines, and the people of the city chafed under the casual brutality and corruption of the police. At exactly nine o'clock in the morning, shopping carts loaded with bombs rattled through the gate of every police station across the city and promptly blew themselves up. At the same moment, Rocket Boy assassinated the police chief as he climbed into his armoured limousine. The pistol's smart, self-guiding bullets blew off his head from a range of half a mile. The city was immediately placed under martial law by the occupying army, but the community leaders made sure that there was no looting or rioting, and the soldiers of the occupying army soon returned to their barracks in the fortified green zone in the centre of the city. A respected religious leader announced that from now on, the city would police itself. A few scapegoats were arrested, tried and executed for the bombings, and Rocket Boy found himself at the head of a militia of more than 10,000 men. The occupying army quickly made an accommodation with him, but the puppet government resented the loss of power. At one of the receptions held in the green zone, a drunken army captain came up to Rocket Boy and told him that he should watch his ass. Certain people wanted him dead. You've come far and fast, and so far you haven't missed a step, the captain said. This was on a balcony of what had once been the city's museum, overlooking the central park. It was midnight, and fireworks were exploding over the lake. The captain's sweating face was briefly lit by red and green and gold light. We know that we took you out. There would be a civil war. So we've come to an accommodation with you. We're a pragmatic people. We let our heads rule our actions, not our hearts. But I should warn you, some of your own people aren't content to let things lie. They want you dead and are willing to pay a high price for it. This man has an agenda, the pistol told Rocket Boy, its voice whispering eerily in his right ear. A week ago, the city's best neurosurgeon extracted the pistol's control chip and implanted it under Rocket Boy's scalp, connecting it to a tiny device that vibrated the bones of his ear. It was part of him now, and forever, a small, still voice whispering advice. Rocket Boy told the captain coolly, if you mean the so-called interim government, they aren't my people. Whatever. Point is, we don't need this kind of trouble. But we can't be seen to take sides. You'll have to deal with it yourself. That is not his own opinion. He is delivering a message. 
Is that your own opinion, Captain, or are you delivering a message? At Rocket Boy's shoulder, Yan Yan, his hair and beard neatly trimmed and dyed snow white, said, Why are you so interested in our affairs? You have become a player in an astonishingly short time, the captain told Rocket Boy, ignoring the old man. You have your secret weapon, of course. Oh, yes, we know all about the scrap of prescribed technology that advises you and keeps your people loyal. We make it our business to know things like that. Don't worry, I'm not here to threaten you with exposure. By now I doubt that it would make much difference if your secret was revealed. The people love him, Yan Yan said. Your people project their desires on you, the captain said, speaking in a whisper now, his face only inches from rocket boys. They believe that you can free them. Don't make the mistake of believing that, and we'll get along fine. They are scared of you. You have the advantage now. Rocket Boy said, Are you scared that you can't control me, Captain? I like you, the Captain said. I hope you survive. I really do. Meanwhile, enjoy the party. He squeezed Rocket Boy's shoulder and walked away, no longer seeming drunk at all. Rocket Boy watched the Black Lake mirrors starburst exploding in the black sky. Yan Yan said, He's right about one thing. I talked with an old friend of mine who has a high position in the government. There's no official plan to assassinate you, but people talk about it all the time. The Minister of Health in particular wishes you dead. He's never forgotten you about that warehouse job. I can deal with him, and anyone else who moves against me. Rocket Boy felt himself smile. You heard the captain. I've been given carte blanche. There may be a more equitable way of dealing with the situation. Remember what I told you. Rocket Boy waited, still smiling. In the rare moments when he was alone these days, he had taken to studying his face in any nearby reflective surface, trying on different expressions. He seemed to be the face of a stranger as if it was an actor impersonating himself. Yan Yan said, I can arrange through my old friend a meeting with the Prime Minister. I am told that he's very willing to negotiate a settlement with you. Is he offering me a job? There is a position, if you want it. The Minister for Security is willing to step aside. Do it, Rocket Boy said, and Yan Yan bowed, walked away towards the far corner of the splendid, crowded room where the Prime Minister held court. Remember what I told you, the pistol said again. There is no time for sentiment. It had warned Rocket Boy that sooner or later someone close to him would bring an offer like this. The one who brings you the offer will be a traitor, it had said. He will have made a deal with your enemies. He will be seeking his own advancement in exchange for your life. If only it had been anyone other than the old man, Rocket Boy thought, feeling a splinter of ice prick his heart. But the moment of regret quickly passed. As usual, the pistol was right. Ordinary human sentiment was a luxury he could no longer afford. There was too much to do, and too much at stake. We must finalize our plans, he said, whispering as if to himself. We have already discussed this. It is too early. Examine your tactical database. Use your wargaming capability. Find a way for me to prevail. Six days later, just an hour before the meeting with the Prime Minister was due to take place, Yan Yan came into Rocket Boy's penthouse apartment and said, If we don't go now, we'll be late. I want to show you something, Rocket Boy said and took the old man by the arm and steered him across the dimly lit room to the big picture window. 
They looked through their reflections in the armoured glass at the twinkling grid of the city's lights. Rocket Boy pointed at the spaceport, glittering beyond the boundary of the city like a satellite galaxy. We've come a long way, he said. And now's the time to consolidate what you've gained, Yan Yan said. Rocket Boy glanced at his watch. It was a few minutes shy of ten o'clock. When I was living under the intersection, I always dreamed of escape. I sat up at night and watched the airplanes and space shuttles take off and land. And whenever I could scrape together a little spare money, I'd ride the bus to the entrance of the spaceport. I couldn't go inside, of course, but I could stand at the gate and watch the people coming and going. The people from other stars who came here to do business or hunt the big animals of the wild. The people who crew their ships. I would dream that one day I would be like them. Yan Yan said nervously, If you want to negotiate for the position of Minister of Transport, it's a little too late. I'm not going to be any part of the puppet government. They were responsible for the murder of my parents, and thousands of others. If I joined them, I would share in their blood guilt. Rocket Boy walked across the room, and picked up the pistol from a side table, and turned to face Yan Yan, who stood straight-backed, and quite still by the huge window, in his expensive slate-blue suit, his white hair gleaming in half-dark of the room. Rocky Boy said, If you feed this simple elements like carbon and iron and nitrogen and phosphorus, it produces bullets that are little different from those fired by ordinary guns. But if you feed it more exotic elements, it can produce bullets that are really complicated little machines. The last batch looked like beetles. They flew off into the city to search out their targets, armed with detectors that can sniff out specific patterns of DNA. And they sting and deliver a neurotoxin that is instantly fatal. The men you were supposed to be taking me to meet by now, they're all dead. I should have destroyed that thing a long time ago, Yan Yan said. You're the only person close to me who does not carry a bullet to ensure loyalty. I trusted you. I believed you were my friend. And you broke my heart. When you took the weapon from the spacer, you made a bargain with the devil, Yan Yan said. I've seen how using it has changed you, day by day. You're no longer the same boy, the same innocent boy I befriended. I changed when I decided that I had to kill Callum, Rocket Boy said. The pistol in his head was counting now, counting backwards from ten. How ten, you kill someone, nine, whether you use a stone eight, or a bullet or your seven, bare hands, it doesn't really six, matter. What matters five, is the intention, four, the resolve. Three, That's the real weapon. Two, one, zero, the pistol said. Spots of light flared in the centre of the city, defining the boundary of the green zone. A moment later, the armoured glass trembled and sang as the shock waves of the explosions reached the penthouse. The lights flickered out for a moment, then came back, dimmer and redder now, running on battery power. The power grid was down, and apart from the flickering fires rising under columns of smoke, the city had gone completely dark, lit only by secondary explosions that were detonating here and there in the green zone. "'You've started a war you can't win,' Yan Yan said. The pistol plugged itself into the information grid and downloaded copies of itself. It controls power and water.' the information grid and the transport systems. It controls thousands of carts and mechs. It controls the security systems of the police armories. Right now, my militia is arming itself. 
Vance entered the room, followed by half a dozen men carrying guns. Yan Yan barely flinched when Vance took his arm. The old man straightened his back and said, "'You don't see it, but you've become a monster.' I'm the weapon used by my people to free themselves from their enemy. Vance began to lead the old man out of the room, the armed men falling in behind them. As he went through the door, Yan Yan turned and said, And who will free them from you? Then Rocket Boy was alone with his thoughts and the pistol. He set the weapon on the table and walked to the window. Across the darkened city, thousands of sparks were springing into life at every intersection, where the people were setting up barricades. To the east, the lights of the spaceport still glittered. It had its own fusion generator. Rocket Boy asked the pistol for a status report. The first stage has been successful, but overall it is still too early to tell if we will succeed. My people are fighting for their lives and their homes. Everything in your database tells me that very few invading armies have prevailed against a resolute population. We will drive the enemy back to its borders. We must do to them what they did to us. At what cost? Freedom's not worth while if it's easily won. There is still time to make peace with the enemy. Something glittered as it passed through the light of a nearby lamp. It was one of the assassin bullets. It moved straight towards Rocket Boy, stopping a yard away, the needle in its blunt tip flicking in and out as if tasting the air. Are you frightened of me? Sometimes it is necessary for me to remind you that you are merely mortal. Think carefully while there is still time. If you take the city but spare the enemy soldiers and administrators, you will not only save their lives, but the lives of many of your people. Rocket Boy laughed. You are frightened of me. Perhaps Yan Yan was right. Perhaps you have become a monster. The bullet was close to Rocket Boy's head now. He watched it for a long moment then reached out and plucked it from the air. Please, please reconsider. No, we will go on and on, you and I. Look, a brilliant point of light flared against the launch pits of the spaceport, the yacht of some trillionaire fleeing the war. Rocket Boy watched as its bright star arced away into the night. I am a power on this backward world, the pistol said. But there are powers much stronger than me in the worlds beyond. We're something new, Rocket Boy said. The assassin bullet vibrated warmly between his thumb and forefinger. We haven't yet found our limits. Perhaps we never will. The voice in his head was silent. Switch the information grid back on. I will make a broadcast announcing that I am taking control of the city. Yes, Master. Rocket Boy tried out the different smiles, studying his ghostly reflection. Which sounds better? Prime Minister Vigo? Or Emperor Vigo the First? There you go, don't forget, copyright is Paul J. McCauley's Paul, thank you very much, sir. And FHN, a fantastic narration, thank you. Now, the eagle-eyed amongst you out there on the web might have noticed a new website spring up, all to do with the kind of fact side of science fiction. It is called Salon Futura, and it is actually ran and hosted by our very own Cheryl Morgan. So we have Cheryl Morgan on the line. Cheryl, very nice of you to come back from your holidays and everything and be on the Starship sofa. 
Thank you, Tony. No. It's very nice of you to have me. Now, Cheryl, there was a launch at Worldcon this year, and it was for Salon Futura. Please, I didn't know anything about this little website of yours. Tell us about it. Ah, yes. Well, Salon Futura is a new magazine that I launched at Worldcon. Uh, You can find it online at salonfutura.net. And uh, hopefully it it will entertain lots of people. Now, what's... What are you going to cover? What, what are you going to cover in, like, publish over there? Well, it, it's going to be entirely nonfiction. Um, you know, there are lots and lots of web magazines that are publishing fiction, um, but very, very few that uh, deal with nonfiction. So, um, and also, of course, nonfiction is the stuff that I know a lot about. I'm, I'm not, uh, don't have a lot of experience of, of editing a, a fiction magazine, so I figured I should stick with, with what I know. Will it be like your review magazine, you know, the old Emerald City? Are you resurrecting that? Um, not really, no. See, um, Emerald City was, uh, first of all, it was written almost entirely by me. Um, and I, I don't really want to inflict too much of myself on the, uh, the, the web reading public anymore. <laughs> we'll have lots of other uh, exciting people that, that they can read as well. But also Emerald City was pretty much purely a book review magazine. And it kind of burnt me out over doing book reviews. I was on a a panel in New Zealand uh, as part of my my recent trip uh, called The Art of Reviewing. And I was struck by the fact that all my other panelists who were practicing reviewers were all saying what a, a chore it was to have to review all these books that they didn't like or they found dull and, and uninspiring and but they, they felt that they had to review them because they'd been sent them by the publishers or, or whatever and and you know you don't have to do that um if you're going to talk about books um you should talk about books that excite you and interest you because otherwise nobody's going to read it are they have you got in place, though, Sharon? You know, you're saying you're getting maybe different people on board there because it, it still does become, not, I'm not saying a chore for everyone, but some people do drop out just of, you know, natural kind of wastage and move on to different areas. Will you always be kind of covered so you've got some content coming out every month? Well, um, I hope so, yeah. I have a, a core group of people who have promised to contribute stuff to me, um, but I've told them very clearly that I'm not expecting a regular monthly column. If they have other things that, that they have to do, um, then um, you know, they, they can skip a month quite easily. Um, just uh, as an example, uh, Sam Jordison is very busy with writing stuff for The Guardian um, this month. He's doing the Not the Booker Prize thing on, on their book blog. And consequently, he's uh, probably not going to deliver anything to me this month. Um, but he'll be back again the month afterwards. Now, the big question then, you know, you, you work for, are oh, you part of Clark's World team? Is that it for you and Clark's World then? No, no, not at all. Uh, the uh, material that I'm buying for Clark's World is very different from what I'm buying for Salon Futura. Um, Clark's World publishes like science articles, articles about music or art or um, history, biographies, that sort of thing. Um, it very, very specifically does not publish articles about books. Um, it does publish interviews, and Salon Futura will do interviews as well, but the interviews are not in my department, um, Neil Clark and uh, Jeremy Jones do those directly. So th- there isn't actually um, anything much in the way of overlap between what I do for Clark's World and what I will be doing with Salon Futura. 
Is this just like a, a, a love for the, the the actual website? Are you going to be kind of paying these people? Is it coming out of your pocket directly, or have you got like a set in place a little kind of scheme or mechanism so you can kind of run this? Oh um, well, to start with, um, you know, um, a few people were kind enough to donate a bit of money when uh, when I first announced it. Um, in addition to that, we have advertising on the website. So um, if you you go and look at the um, uh, the first issue, you'll see some some adverts on there from people who were kind enough to give us money. Um, obviously, um, just like Clark's World, we'll take donations from anyone who enjoys what they read and uh, thinks we're worth supporting. And uh, in the longer run, there will be um, stuff available for, for sale through various um, outlets such as uh, Kindle and iBooks and whatever. And uh, if you go over to the site, you can actually see that there is a, it's all multimedia. You know, the, the, you, you cover the kind of the whole range of the game there, Cheryl. What, yeah, um, is, is that I, a hard I, thing to kind of keep up? Or is it, are you excited about that? Well, I, I wanted to do something different. You know, again, you know, lots and lots of people um, publish interviews online. Um, and I think interviews are a useful thing to have. I, I remember Charles Brown saying that he decided to do interviews in Locus because he wanted to provide some sort of connection between the readers and, and the people who actually produce the books. Um, but nowadays, of course, um, we, we can make that connection much more personal. If we do a video interview... You not only get get to hear your favorite authors talk, you also get to see what they look like, um, which in, in the, the most cases is is very pleasant indeed. Um, we have, after all, started out with China uh, Mievel, who I gather lots of people like looking at um, and reading his books as well. Um, and um, for uh, for those of you who prefer looking at ladies, we also have uh, Lauren Burkus from South Africa, who I, I gather is very popular. With uh, young gentlemen, uh, and also a very very fine writer too. I, I really like her books. Um, so yeah, this 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 that stuff, uh, and um, we're also having a, a, a podcast discussion. Now, <laughs> you know what the next question is going to be, then, Cheryl Jones is. Is this going to kind of... Well, actually, I don't give a monkey's uncle to be <laughs> if it comes into my territory. I think that's all the better if you're kind of doing, you know, kind of cross-promotion and you are the similar to Starship so far. But what, will, will you be kind of competing with me? Is that what you're going for? Or? Oh, I, I, I don't think so, no. I mean, to, to start with, a lot of what you podcast is fiction. Um, and I won't be podcasting any fiction at all. Now you you do have um, you know, discussions and, and whatever on on the sofa, but uh, the impression I've got is is that you've had a, a regular group of people who uh, who were there um, uh, most uh, episodes, uh, and and they talk about you know whatever are the the current issues of the day. Um, my podcast is is going to be rather different. Um, the only regular feature on it is going to be me. And I'll be inviting a, a different group of people each month to come and talk to me. And we'll have a, a specific issue um, each month that they will um, be addressing. So in the, the first issue, we were talking all about the nature of the science, science fiction field and whether it's changing now that we've got people from like, all over the world um, uh, being translated into English or writing in English um, we've got lots of mainstream people coming and starting to write books that look very much like science fiction. Um, so we, we had that discussion. Uh, we had uh, Gary Wolf from, from Locus on there. Uh, Nedia Korofor, who's um, uh, of uh, Nigerian ancestry 
and Fabio Fernandez from Brazil. So we, we had a, a nice international feel to that one. Well, like I said before, Cheryl, it would, I'd love you to kind of come in you know, and share audiences and things like that. It'd be great just to get, you know, get Salon Future up there off the ground. I've, I have no problems whatsoever with that. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure that uh, and, and, I'll be uh, happy to promote the sofa as well. Yeah. Now, you just said there before, you're kind of selling this and, or not selling it, but kind of putting it out there in different formats. Is, did you say there was an ebook version of, of your show? Yeah. Yeah, well, with issue one, there's um, uh, an ebook uh, version for free download. You can get it from the website. Uh, it's in EPUB format, so it'll work on an iPad or any of the other devices that support that format. Um, when I get my act together, having recovered from jet lag from all the rushing around the world, I'll uh, get issue one put in the uh, iBook store and also hopefully on the Kindle store as well. Um, so people will then actually be able to buy the magazine for a, a nominal sum and uh, put it on their portable e-readers, and that hopefully will you know, help uh, pay our contributors, which is, is something that, that's very important to me. What about submissions? Do, are, are you into getting submissions, or have you got your kind of writers, your fixed writers, and that's it? You're kind of a closed shop, or can anyone come and drop you a line and help well, out? I, I'd be delighted to receive submissions from people. I mean, anybody who has you know, interesting you know, thoughts about books and you know, likes writing critical articles and, and that sort of thing, I'd be very pleased to, to hear from them. And there's a submissions page on the website where people can read a little bit more about what we're looking for. Um, but um, I'm not going... I mean, the important thing to me is to actually pay for this. Um, I've, I think it's, it's really important that people who write nonfiction good nonfiction should get paid for it in just the same way that people who write good fiction should get paid. And if you're going to pay, then you can't take like um, lots and lots of content unless you've got lots and lots of, of income as well. Um, with Emerald City, if somebody sent me a book review and it was reasonably good, I'd be happy to print it because uh, it was no cost to me. But uh, with Salon Futura, um, because I will be paying for, for the material, um, I have to be reasonably fussy about what we take and uh, i probably won't take more than two paid articles a month um, it'll, it'll be sort of like clark's world you know clark's world only publishes two paid stories uh, a month um, because it has limited funds and it wants to pay very well and, and i want to do the same thing so is that the way it's working then Cheryl? it's going to come out once a month or a bit like mine like once a week which way is it going oh it'll be monthly Right, so. um, I, I, I certainly couldn't uh, do, do anything more frequent than that. Um, there, there will eventually be um, new stuff appearing fairly regularly in a, a you know, blog type thing on the site, but um, that, that'll just be like, brief mentions of things that uh, people will be interested in. Well, Cheryl, I just hope you all the success in the world. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, my, um, my pleasure, Tony. It's it's great honour to be uh, on a, a, a Hugo-winning podcast. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. Uh, that's lovely. <laughs> Cheryl, honestly, if, you see, if I can help out again in any way, please give us a shout and we'll get you back on the show. Hopefully, you're, you're still going to come over now and again and do your observation desk. Uh, I, I certainly am, yes. I, I was hoping that I would be at FantasyCon this weekend, but I, I'm just too tired after all the... Uh, the rushing around, but uh, maybe maybe something from Bristol Con in November. That would be Cheryl. That would be lovely. Thank you so much, and good luck. <laughs> Alrighty, thank you, Tony. Mm-hmm. 
do pop over to that site again. I will put a link on so you can go over there and say hello to Cheryl and subscribe to the podcast and subscribe to the feed. Please, please, please. Just to announce the competition winners from last week, there is still one book left, the HG Wells, the little hardback edition of Food of the Gods. If you want to win that, just paste in the show notes in your blog and first one to get in touch with us will get that book. Robin Bradshaw and Brian Woods, their books are on the way to use. So that is Oral's Light Show 155. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Thank <music> you.